This podcast is researched and presented by enthusiasts, not experts, for entertainment purposes only. None of the content you're about to hear is meant to be taken as legal, medical, financial, survival, or any other kind of advice. Please consult with professionals. This episode contains mature content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Please be advised. Welcome to In the Labyrinth of Death the podcast where we explore the choices people make in disasters and whether those choices keep them alive. I'm Finn. And I'm Marina. This week, we're going to be talking about plane crashes. So we're just about to hit the holiday season when lots of people fly to visit family. Chances are you'll never, ever, ever be in a plane crash. But if you are, maybe this could come in handy. I also want to say, Finn, you hate flying, right? Oh, yeah. I fucking love airports, though. For me, it's like you step through, like you get through security, and then you're in like this portal of a responsibility-free zone where you just get to like buy junk food and chill. You don't have to do anything other than feed yourself, get some coffee, read a book, or watch a movie for like an hour before your flight. It's the fucking best. I cannot fucking stand waiting. All I want to do is just teleport to where I need to be and skip sitting on a plane for five fucking hours. The waiting's the good part, though, for me, because I like I don't know. I just love hanging out, not having anything that I have to do or anywhere else I have to be. I don't know. I just love it. All right. The story I'm going to open with is one of the most famous plane crashes known as the Andes flight disaster. Several of the survivors have written books and I haven't read any of them yet, but I really want to. It's also been made into a movie in 1993. I think it was starring Ethan Hawke. And there are also several documentaries about it as well. This is the story of the rugby team whose plane crashed into the Andes. It's going to be a long, wild ride, so hang in there with me. It was a cloudy day on October 13, 1972. Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 was carrying 40 passengers and 5 crew from Montevideo, Uruguay to Santiago, Chile. So like probably every other flight you've ever been on, there was both a pilot and a co-pilot on the plane at the time. Pilot Ferratus was experienced, but his co-pilot Lagerara wasn't. Unfortunately, In that moment in time, Lagirara was the one in control of the plane as they approached the Planchon Pass in the Andes. Because it was a cloudy day, Lagirara was using instruments to determine where they were, and that was specifically a kind of navigation called radio navigation, and that's basically where radio signals are sent from the ground and then they're read on the plane to determine where the plane's location is. So this is the part that's really weird. So when you think about trying to figure out where like a boat or a plane is in space, You're thinking about like, oh, you're on like a boat and you have like a sextant and you're like tracking it. But on the plane at this moment in time, it wasn't like Lagerara was like doing calculations. There was literally a readout that was telling them that they were still 60 to 70 kilometers away from this place called Curico. And we don't know if he misread it or what was going on, but for whatever reason, he misinterpreted the readings and thought that they were much, much closer to Curico than they actually were. So at 321, they'd only just gotten to the beginning of the pass. But Lagerara informed air traffic control that they would be approaching Curico in one minute. Then only three minutes later, he requested permission to begin descent. And he was given permission to descend. And that's because air traffic control didn't actually know where he was, and they didn't know that he wasn't actually far enough on the flight path. So he begins to descend, and as the plane descends, it starts to encounter like really bad turbulence, and it catches a downdraft, and actually drops the plane like several hundred feet. And so they kind of drop below the cloud level, And suddenly, everybody's looking at the black ridge of a mountain that they're coming up on really fast. So Lagirara pulls the plane back up sharply, and they're almost vertical. But because this was like a really like heavy, underpowered plane, the engines actually start stalling out as they pull up that sharply. 
So everybody starts to panic. The ground collision alarm goes off. He manages to pull the plane like up, up, up over the top of the mountain, but the tail actually strikes the mountain as they crest and the tail breaks off entirely. Five people are killed in this first impact on the mountain. Then the plane goes up another 200 meters, still trying to get over the top, and then the left wing strikes the mountain and is shorn entirely off. So at this point, two more people have fallen out of the back of the plane, because remember, it's wide open after the tail broke off. One is killed instantly, and the other survives for a little bit, but he ultimately dies of asphyxiation before he's found by the other survivors. Then the remaining fuselage flies through the air before impacting with a glacier, hurtling downward, and it's going over 200 miles an hour down this hill. Holy shit. Yeah, it finally, like, and suddenly impacts with a snowbank, so it rips all the seats loose, everybody, like, flies forward into the plane, and at this point, Pilot Ferratus, he's actually crushed to death, and th- at least three other people are killed on impact into the snowbank. So, what exactly is the body count? I, I'm really bad at math. Um, we started with, like, 45 people total, so we lost three, and then two, and then, like, another, like, four or five, so, you know, we're, like, it's, like, 25%. So the co-pilot, Lagarara, was severely injured and he begged to be shot to be put out of his misery because he was in so much pain. So the passengers didn't want to shoot him, but he would go on to die later that night anyway. Luckily, though, there were two medical students on the flight, Robert Canesa and Gustavo Zerbino, and they did their best to triage the survivors, you know, give them whatever assistance they could. One man, Nando Parado, he had a skull fracture and he was actually in a coma for several days. And remember his name because he's going to come up a lot later. And remember, it was cold there, like really cold since they were on a glacier. I, since we live up in in North America, I always forget that there's a lot of cold places in South America. And remember that this plane has crashed into a glacier. So all of the survivors were crammed together in the remaining chunk of the fuselage. So they're like sardines in there. And they actually like pack it with snow and all the debris. And they try to fashion it into a shelter as best they could just to keep themselves alive and not freezing to death. And then there were some really smart people on the plane. They found a way to melt the snow into water, even in that situation. They even figured out how to make like these rudimentary sunglasses to prevent snow blindness. There was, they did a lot of really smart stuff. But that's not to say that it wasn't really, really rough going. So Nando, the guy who was in the coma, he finally wakes up to find that his mother's already dead and his sister's dying of injuries. So no one there is having a good time because everyone was flying either with teammates or friends and family. It's just the whole thing's a catastrophe. So they managed to find like a little radio crammed into like the wreckage. And so they knew that people were looking for them. But then they found out that it was called off after only 11 days of searching because they just couldn't see the plane, which was white, among all the snow on the glacier. So everybody who survived, they knew that they were on their own. And they also didn't have much food at all. They rationed it, but it only lasted a few days. And they actually started eating parts of the plane and parts of the luggage just to try to like put something in their stomach. But even after that, after a week of freezing and starving on the glacier, they finally realized that they'd have to eat the people who died because there was no vegetation, there were no other animals, there was nothing else to keep them alive. And luckily for them, in terms of surviving, the other people who had been thrown out of the plane and killed, they were actually frozen completely solid. So they were preserved enough to be eaten days later, as horrible and weird as a thought that is. They actually used shards of glass to cut pieces of the bodies off and they laid them out in the sun to dry to make them more palatable. Even still, there were people who were unwilling or unable to eat human flesh. So I, just for the record, I'm vegetarian. I don't know if I, I've never eaten animal meat. I don't know if I could eat human meat, but I guess if you're starving, you'll eat probably just about anything. So without nutrition, the folks who didn't eat the other people who were on the plane, they all ended up dying themselves. And then from there, it only gets worse. 
and this is going to sound like it's something out of a movie, but this really happened. So 17 days after the crash, the fuselage where everybody was like hunkering down, protecting themselves from the cold, gets hit by a fucking avalanche. Like coming down the glacier, it hits the fuselage. It kills eight more people just on impact from the, from the avalanche itself. And the rest of the people in the fuselage are actually trapped in the snow and they realize they're running out of air. And they actually have to poke a hole out of the fuselage itself with a pole in order to get oxygen in because they were so trapped in a little bubble. And then they had to dig themselves out in like a tunnel. And when they got outside the fuselage, they realized that they were in the middle of a blizzard and they had to crawl back inside and close themselves back inside in order to survive. So they're backed in the fuselage and they realize they don't even have access anymore to like the frozen bodies that are out in the snow, the ones they've been carving up and drying out in the sun. And they realize that they have to eat the raw flesh of the people that they were just talking to who'd just been killed in the avalanche because they don't have any other options. So after the blizzard quiets down, four people, including the medical student, Robert Canessa and Nanda Parado, the guy who'd been in a coma, they actually leave to try to go and get help. They don't find any help, but they do find a little bit of food, supplies, and a radio in a different part of the plane that had dropped somewhere else. And so they turn around to go back, realizing they're not going to find their way out. So they turn around to go back, they get stuck in another blizzard, and they barely make it back to the fuselage alive. So at this point, two more people are dead in the fuselage, and they died from gangrene, and a third has died from starvation because he just couldn't bring himself to eat human meat. So now things are getting really, like, beyond, beyond desperate. And they knew if they were going to survive, any person who's still in the fuselage was going to survive, they had to actually climb up and over the mountain to go get help, or they were all going to die. So the three strongest men set out, that was Robert Canessa, Nando Parado, and Antonio Visitin, and together they fashioned a sleeping bag to keep themselves alive in the brutal cold at night. After a few days of, of really, really hard hiking in this basically vertical area, they start running out of food, so Antonio volunteers to return back to the fuselage, and Robert and Nando push onward for a few days until they find other humans. So finally, after 72 days, they were saved. Robert and Nando were saved first, and then over the next two days, a total of 14 people were rescued from the fuselage, including Antonio, who had turned back when they ran out of food. So that's the story of the Andes flight disaster and the people who just refused to fucking die. I have so much respect for them. That was absolutely absurd. So about how long did this entire episode take? It was 72 fucking days out there on the glacier, dude. You're sure days and not hours? You don't eat someone after 72 hours. That's like a long fast. Okay, I would eat somebody after 72 hours. I mean, yeah, probably. But most people, most regular humans would not. What do they do for water? I'm not good at physics or understanding this, but in there was one person who was like in charge of like all the inventions. It was like one person who came up with everything. And he somehow used like a sheet of metal to put snow on and then it melted and then it actually dripped into wine bottles that they could then drink out of. I don't know how they came up with this so or they how had it worked. Unlimited water. Basically, yes. That's so good. They had unlimited water in a frozen glacier, which is crazy. So that's probably the only way they were able to survive at all. I mean, at that point, you don't even need to have anybody to eat. You can just survive off of the water, right? No, actually that's not true. One of the people I can't remember if he was one of the survivors or not. It was so long and there was so little food, he was down to fifty five pounds when they got him. And he was like uh, a full grown adult male you can't live on just the water. Not that long. What if you were like morbidly obese though? 
Yeah, you probably could. But remember, these were rugby players, most of them. Oh, they, shit. These were like right. athletes, dude. They didn't have any extra yeah, on them. Yeah, so their metabolisms are pretty fucking high. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're like young men athletes. Jeez, that's brutal. Okay. Yeah, that's like it, me on a plane in my current fluffy state could probably live for a while before I had to eat, but not these guys. So this is obviously like a super, super extreme version of what can happen in a plane crash. It was really, really horrible. Finn, do you have some stats for us, right, on like what the chances are of dying in a plane crash? Yeah, you're super unlikely to ever die in a plane crash. Apparently, the chance is about 1 in 11 million. Even if you are in a plane crash, you're super likely to survive. According to the European Transit Safety Council, you have about a 90% chance of surviving a plane crash. I've seen in some other places that estimate the survival rate to be a little bit lower, but regardless, you have a really good chance of surviving most plane crashes. There's a very small number of modern crashes that are basically unsurvivable. Yeah, and outside of those like basically unsurvivable ones, which is actually when I'm thinking about plane crashes, I think I'm in the plane and then it's just going to like turn straight down and I'm going to die. Apart from those super unlikely scenarios, you're really, really unlikely to be killed specifically in a commercial airplane. So the way most of us fly in planes, you're probably not going to die. And partially because of COVID, but there were literally zero fatalities on a commercial airplane in 2020. Zero in the United States. When that's crazy when you think about how common car crashes are. So like what Finn said, you have a 1 in 11 million chance of dying in a plane crash but it's one in 5,000 chance of dying in a car crash. Like it's orders of magnitude different. Definitely. And I think most people have heard the adage that it's much, much safer to travel by plane compared to driving. And these numbers should support that. Someone said this to me. I'm sure it's like a common thing, but like the most dangerous part of your trip is going to be the car trip to the airport. And that's 100% true. Because once you're in the airport, you're basically safe. So I am a bit curious about this. Is there anything you can do to prepare in advance of a plane crash in order to, let's say, maximize your chances of surviving? Yeah, you can. If you're worried about that, like, really off chance you're going to get in a plane crash, you can actually wear clothes that are going to give yourself a better chance of survival. You can wear something that's durable and preferably flame resistant. So if you wear something that's loose, it could get snagged on something when you're trying to exit and you're actually more likely to catch on fire. And just as a side note, I don't actually know why this is other than that it's like more billowy when you wear loose clothing. I do know that kids' pajamas are either loose, and if they're loose, they're made of flame-resistant material, or they're like basically like long underwear. And those two, like like the loose flame-resistant or the long underwear style, are to keep kids safer from fires at night. Yeah, our daughter sleeps in princess gowns every night, though. Yeah, but some of those princess gowns are actually nightgowns. But yeah, if you want to be safe, basically dress like you're a little kid getting ready for bed and you should be okay. Also, make sure you're wearing comfortable shoes that you can move in. And this was really annoying. I saw a bunch of sites saying like, and this was a quote, like, avoid those stilettos. Honestly, who the fuck is wearing stilettos on an airplane? I'm either doing like the Crocs and socks thing or like tennis shoes and socks. I can't imagine wearing heels of any kind. But if you are so inclined to wear heels on a plane, just don't. Just think you might have to walk on a surface that's like uneven, like there's going to be people crowding around, pushing towards the exit. There could be luggage on the ground. So just, you know, play it safe. I've also seen that you should avoid smaller planes. So if you're someone who is fortunate enough to be able to book a private charter jet or something like that, they're going to be a lot more likely to crash in the first place. So compared to pretty big commercial planes, try to avoid those little ones. 
and when they're saying like smaller planes, I don't think they mean like jets because I don't think like the rich people jets are at risk for going down. It's more like the little puddle jumper planes that are like the little ones. They might even have like the air masks that come down. So like those smaller planes are a lot more dangerous. If you're in like a fancy jet, I'm sure that you're even safer than you would be in like a regular plane. But regardless of what kind of plane you're on, if you can, try to sit towards the back of the plane. According to a Time Magazine study, and I think also one from like Popular Mechanics, of all crashes from 1980 to 2015, someone sitting in the back of the plane had a 32% chance of dying in a crash. And remember, this is going back to 1980 when you were more likely to die in a crash than you are now. And by contrast, somebody at the same time at the front of the plane had a 38% chance of dying, and someone in the middle had 39%. And one note, though, it just depends on how the plane crashes. There's no guarantee because, like, in the case with the Andes tragedy, the people on the tail of the plane, it got cut off, so you would have been doomed anyway. Also, if you can, try to sit close to an exit row. A study from the University of Greenwich found that sitting within five rows of the exit significantly improved your chances of survival. So it sounds like your best bet is to sit in the back of the plane in or near an exit row. Yeah, if you can. If you can't sit near an exit row, You can also try to like get an aisle seat because it's going to take less time to get out and get to that exit. And remember, we're not trying to like trample over people to get there, just move out in an orderly fashion, but it does improve your chances if you're on the aisle seat. And if you think about it, time is really your enemy here. If the planes hit the ground and there's flames, you need to get out as soon as possible. And being closer to that exit row is going to help you get out. I mean, I already prefer aisle seats to begin with, but it seems like in this place, even if you're not near an exit, being in the aisle will position you to be better able to reach the exit if you need to go there. Yeah, this was actually really upsetting for me because I'm a window person. So maybe you'll survive and I won't, but I'm not going to switch to aisle seats right now. Also, actually pay attention to the instructions that the flight attendants are giving. And even if you've seen it a million times, I know it's super hard to focus on it, but it's important. And I actually noticed recently that they have like the videos on the back of the seat in front of you. And that's a lot harder to ignore because it's right in front of your face. Also, just read the fucking card that's in the back of your seat. Like, actually read it for comprehension. I know when I'm reading stuff, like when I'm bored on a plane, I'm not really reading it for comprehension. So read it and understand what it actually means. Okay, so let's say you're on the plane now and there's some kind of mechanical trouble. You're probably in the first three minutes of takeoff or in the last eight minutes before you land. Those are the time frames in which you're most likely to crash. If the oxygen masks come down, put it on immediately. They say that you should help yourself before you help anybody else with theirs. If you do the reverse of this and you do try to put someone else's mask on for them before you do for yourself, then there's a high likelihood that you won't be fully cognizant or aware enough and then you'll both die. So as a side note, I've never had to put on oxygen masks on a plane, but I did get to wear an oxygen mask for a little bit when I was in the hospital in labor and they actually forgot to turn the oxygen on. So I was just slowly suffocating more and more until they actually noticed. It was just a great time. But the ones that drop down from the plane will actually work without someone having to turn them on manually. One question I always had, though, is what if someone has a child that they're taking on their lap who doesn't have a seat? They do allow that, which is crazy to me. Yeah, you can't hold on to a kid in a car crash. Have you seen those videos of like the big like football players trying to hold on to like the kid dummy in a car crash? And like they can't do it. It's not possible. You definitely can't do it on a plane crash. Yeah, absolutely not. You got to bring a car seat onto the plane so that number one, your kid doesn't get thrown from your arms. And number two, you're guaranteed to have enough oxygen masks to go down. 
Again, I'm not an expert in basically anything about this subject, so check with the flight attendant next time you're flying if you do have any questions about this. Yeah, they're, they're really safety experts first and foremost, so definitely ask them if you have questions. I'd also like to say, I am a little bit of a crazy person when it comes to our dogs, and I have wondered about what would happen when you're flying with your pets in cabin. So I assume that in the event of like, you know, depressurizing and you're crashing or something, if your pets are in cargo, they're probably doomed. But what about if you have your pets in cabin? Like maybe they'll have a chance. I'm not sure about the oxygen mask situation though, because I think it's like they just fall down and it's like a one for one seat kind of thing. So I'd probably try to do something stupid and like try to share the mask with my dog. But then in order to share the mask with my dog, I'd have to get them out from under the seat. But then if we crash, then they would be thrown from my arms like the child would, and I'd want them to be tucked under the seat. So I don't actually know what's best for animals in that situation. That one time, though, when you did fly back on a plane with one of our dogs, did you have to worry about it back then? I did, but honestly, I was mostly worried about him refusing to pee at like 10 weeks old for like eight hours, just because he's a stubborn Sheba. He did eventually, though, get to meet a bunch of flight attendants and captains, which was fun. So you're in the plane and it's rapidly descending. Hopefully, you're already buckled in, but if you're not, you should definitely think about buckling up. Then, assume the brace position. In most planes, that means that you should brace your head and arms against the top of the seat in front of you. If you somehow have more space, you can lean over, put your head between your knees, and then grab your ankles. Basically, any way that you can brace is better than nothing. I just want to say one thing about bracing. It's changed over the years as like the size of planes and all that stuff has changed. So, and it depends on the country too. So in the US, like Finn was saying, you're actually supposed to lean up against the seat in front of you and kind of like, because there's not much space there and like use that to keep yourself like protected. But if you have more space, you can lean over and it really just depends. So do whatever the flight attendants are telling you at the time. But if they don't have time to tell you, just kind of like try to brace yourself against the seat in front of you. Now, once you've crashed, A lot of people do this and it's very strange. Don't try to take anything with you. People's brains do weird things, like really weird things. And it's not their fault that their brains are doing this, but if you can be aware that it's a thing that can happen to you, you might be able to stop it. So one of my favorite books is called The Unexpected and it talks about how one of the people in the towers in 9-11, she just kept walking around in her cube for like a long time trying to figure out what to take with her just because that's how her brain reacted. So if you can, like, get to the action faster and remember, you don't need anything that you're traveling with. Just your, yourself, your kids, your pets, any other, like, living things you're traveling with. And if you know that you have, like, a medication you're going to need before you can be rescued, maybe don't put that in the overhead compartment so that if you need to, you can just grab it from underneath your seat. But in general, unless you're going to die without it before help gets there, just leave it. And you really only have about 90 seconds to evacuate a crashed plane because of something called a flashover, which is where existing jet fuel could vaporize and spontaneously combust, which will cause everything in and around the cabin to just vaporize. So definitely take the time to get out of there after the plane crashes as soon as you can. And remember, you may not be lucky enough to crash somewhere anywhere near civilization. You could be like in the middle of the Andes like in the crash I opened with. Yeah, if your plane crashes somewhere near like a town or a city, then the good news is the proper authorities and rescue groups are probably already on their way to get you to a hospital. That means that the worst is over and you just got to sit tight. 
Now, if you're just shit out of luck and you crash land somewhere in like a mountain range or a forest, then you just have to buckle up until somebody finds you. Now, that could mean that you have to eat somebody or look for food or scavenge. And in the worst case... Hopefully not in that order, though. (laughs) Look for food and scavenge before you eat somebody. (laughs) For the record. (laughs) Sorry, keep going. In the worst case, you're going to have to find your way out all by yourself. Generally, though, when you're lost, you should stay put like exactly where you are, whether you're in the woods or in the water or anywhere. That's because people are going to be looking for you based on where the plane ended up. So staying close to the crash site means you're more likely to be found than if you leave and go somewhere else. You're going to want to focus on shelter, water, and food in that order. And not to overstate the obvious, but try to address any medical emergencies as soon as you can. There is a chance that you might be able to find some sort of first aid within the wreckage of the plane. Also, and this is another side note, I used to want to get one of those little GPS messenger devices. They look like a little like walkie-talkie or phone. And basically they can send like a, an SOS message via satellite, like a text message, but straight to a satellite. I don't even know if you'd need that now, though, since the new iPhones, they can actually do that when you could be like out in the woods and tell them you're having like an emergency and it will tell you where to point your phone so they can pick up the satellite and send the SOS message and your GPS location. That actually does sound pretty cool. So it looks like you want to have some sort of zipper pocket that you can put that device in so that if the plane crashes, you're not going to lose it. Yeah, that would be good. I mean, you're not going to have a lot of time probably if you're panicking, but you know, if you are just holding your phone on the plane, you don't want it anymore. Stick it in your like a zipper pocket instead of in the seat in front of you. So how are they actually going to find you? If you haven't been able to send out like an SOS message with your coordinates, how the fuck are they going to find you in the wilderness? So I spent a lot of time doing detective work trying to find out how people are found after a plane crash. And there is shockingly little documentation on this subject. The two primary technologies that I was able to find documentation on are number one, using a breadcrumb trail, and number two, what they call an ELT, or an Emergency Locator Transmitter. So the breadcrumb trail works a lot like your phone's GPS in that every minute or so, it sends a ping to a network of satellites that saves the plane's geocoordinates. Now in the second case, which is the Emergency Locator Transmitter, it's actually like an orange or yellowish box that will deploy in the case that the plane has some sort of failure. So if there's a crash, this box should activate and transmit the coordinates of whatever the plane's wreckage site is. Now, Oh, that's cool. That's like when, you, when you're like in an accident and your phone like calls 911 for you. Yeah, a lot of people think that this is what the black box does, but really it's the ELT. Now keep in mind, the ELT only activates when the plane actually undergoes some sort of major failure. But the problem is, I read that in the Smithsonian Magazine article, 75% of the time, the ELTs don't really even work. So you can't rely on, in the event of a plane crash, that physical ELT to do what it's supposed to do. Because imagine in the case in your first Andes example where the tail end is sheared off. Well, shit, the ELT's on the tail. So wherever the, the rest of the plane crashes, That's true. it doesn't mean anything. You could be like going for another several dozen miles and you're not going to know where the rest of the plane went. 
well fuck yeah you're right you yeah. know, it may not be right there even if the like the actual mechanism is working you you mean it won't be like physically near the rest of the plane yeah and i've seen in the smithsonian article like if it's submerged in water for too long it might fucking not work the technology is actually very surprisingly old it's not as robust as even probably what your phone could handle i would say that's shocking to me yeah definitely so to me this article seemed really biased towards the breadcrumb trail tracker kind of thing, which I found a little bit suspect, but the breadcrumb method seems to be a little bit more reliable according to this one article. I trust Smithsonian Magazine, though. The way that the writer says it is more reliable is that you don't have to rely on any specific like survival of a device or something uh, physical. It just periodically, like I said, sends in a regular interval some sort of signal. The second, or I guess the minute that your signal stops transmitting, that's where they're going to say, hey, look in this area first. But yeah, that's the moment it stops transmitting. But if you've had some kind of catastrophic failure, it's possible that you've glided for a while after that happened, right? Yeah, that's the thing. So especially if you land in open water, those currents could make you drift one way or another, and you're not going to be in a likely situation where you can get rescued. Yeah, that's pretty shitty. Jeez. One thing I wanted to talk about in terms of being found, though, is signaling. You can always do like the like the smoke signal thing. But to me, that that runs a really high risk of starting like a forest fire that kills you or something like that. People will sometimes you see in movies, they'll like spell out help or SOS with like rocks or sticks or something. So you can do that. But if you actually see like a rescue plane or helicopter looking for you, if you have something bright like a flare, use it. If you have something reflective like a mirror, you can try shining it towards them. I actually saw one guide saying that you could actually make like a peace sign in the air and like put the plane or the helicopter in the V in your hand and then shine the mirror through your hand so you know you're pointing it directly at them and that that's one way to kind of get their attention because I've seen a lot of rescue stories where it'll be like the helicopter's right over us and they don't see us. That's because relative to like the earth, you're fucking tiny and they can't see you. So anything you can do to get their attention, anything bright like that to draw attention to yourself, go ahead and do that. So it seems like light is the key to getting noticed after a plane crash. Can be, yeah. I mean, if you have like like a, a bright tarp or something like that, use that. If you have like a bright orange tarp, that's cool too. But a lot of these like survival kits you'll see, they come with a mirror. And it's not just for like using it to like start fires or something. It's it's specifically to signal rescuers to like let them know where you are using like the light of the sun. And one crazy thing I read is that if your plane has some kind of failure in midair and explodes, if you happen to survive that initial explosion, then you're going to have about three minutes before you hit the ground. So in that time, if you have the presence of mind to do that, try to aim for something soft like snow or a swamp. But definitely don't go for water. It's going to be as hard as concrete because of surface tension. And, and that's just because of the height that you're dropping from. So now if your plane itself has crashed into the water, this is counterintuitive, but try to avoid swimming if you can. Try to float on a piece of debris. If there's no debris, try to float just on your back. And that's actually going to keep a little bubble of warmth around you. If you're in the ocean, you're not going to be able to do this because you're going to keep getting like facefuls of water over and over on your face. So actually try to do like a dead man's float, which is like floating on your back, but on your stomach with your face in the water and pick your head up for oxygen only as much as you need it. That way you can kind of stay afloat, not use energy and stay warm, but still breathe. 
The only time you're going to want to tread water is if you're in very, very, very cold water and when it's rough. So it's cold and it's rough together. In that case, you're going to need to tread water because of the waves hitting you, but you can't do the dead man's float because you're going to get hypothermia. So you have to keep moving in water like that instead of just keeping your face in the water like that. So remember, if there's other people, also try to swim towards them for warmth. But don't swim towards people who are panicking because they're going to drown you. So only like if they're chill, swim towards them for warmth. And obviously you should learn how to swim because if you're in a plane crash and it's landing somewhere in water, you're going to get fucked. And that's honestly probably a worse way to die than being in the plane crash itself because drowning trapped in a dark prison is the worst thing I could possibly imagine. And I had one last like tiny little thing I wanted to bring up about all of this. And this, I originally read about it in that book, The Unexpected, and I've read about it in a few other places. There's this thing that humans go through, and it's called the normalcy bias, where even if something catastrophic is happening, your brain doesn't want to accept that it's happening. So there's like a period of time between the bad shit happening and you reacting to it, where you just do fuck nothing, or you do something stupid and useless. And you've wasted all that time from like the bad thing happening to you realizing that it's actually really happening when you could have taken action and actually done something. So if you're in a plane that's crashed and you have 90 seconds to get out, don't spend 30 of those seconds like letting your brain tell you that it's okay because it might do that. So you need to fight against it and move as quickly as you can, knowing that your brain's going to do that. Just acknowledge it, know it in advance, and just kind of like cut it off if you can. Yeah, it sounds like in not just this case, but in a lot of other emergency catastrophic cases, you almost want to overreact and take action than the opposite. I've never been in a situation like this, but I would be curious because I am the opposite of you. I am like the queen of anxiety and thinking through all the worst case scenarios. So I'm like always ready for the worst case scenario, but you always, you're the optimist. You always think that everything's going to be okay. So I don't know how your brain would react in this kind of a situation. Yeah, apparently going by what I've been saying so far, my brain would probably default to looking for somebody to eat first. That's like as the plane is filling up with water, you're going to be like trying to eat the guy in the road next to us. <laughs> it's not going to, we're not going to make it out of that, man. They're going to kill us. Everyone on the plane is going to have to like team up and kill us. All right. I think that's all we've got for plane crashes this week. Again, it's very unlikely, but you know, stay safe just in case. Don't forget that we have a website. It's in the labyrinth of You can also reach us at in the labyrinth of death on Instagram. So follow us, leave us a review if you get a chance. We'd really appreciate it. Tune in next week for a new episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. In the meantime, send us your stories or near misses with death to in the labyrinth of death at gmail.com. See y'all next week. Bye.